This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, Thomas J. Ward Jr. discusses his new book, Out in the Rural, a Mississippi health center and its war on poverty. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot analyzes holiday book sales. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. Not much happening on the list this week Mm. Uh, everything's been a little slow the national book awards bumps are over and uh, we've got a new number one in hardcover fiction let's cross the line the 24th alex cross novel by james patterson no surprise that it's at the top of the bestseller list but it's uh, not tremendously exciting in any other way and actually by patterson standards the first week sales aren't that great 52,000 copies sold Mm. uh it may be uh Losing his touch a little bit. We'll see. But um, this is the the 24th book in the very popular Alex Cross thriller series. And this time, uh, Alex Cross, who's an investigator who is usually working on the side of good, more or less, is pulled in to investigate someone who I can only describe as Batman. Somebody is killing criminals and uh, apparently decided to be judge, jury, and executioner. And so Cross has to hunt him down uh, for the sake of proper justice served by the proper authorities. So that's at number one. Next big debut on the list is all the way down at number 12. It's Moonglow by Michael Chabon. I didn't even know that he had a new book out. This uh, went totally under my radar. We say that this is a charming and elegantly structured novel presented as a memoir by a narrator named Mike who shares several autobiographical details with Shaban. For example, they're both novelists who live in the Bay Area. Mm. Um, but uh, his memoir is concerned less with his own life than with the lives of his deceased maternal Jewish grandparents who remain unnamed. And uh, we say that uh, what uh, seduces the reader is the language which reinvents the world joyously on almost every page. Listening to his grandfather's often harrowing stories, Mike thinks to himself, what I knew about shame would fit into half a pistachio shell. So uh, definitely one uh, for Shaban's fans and particularly fans of uh, the the aspects of his fiction that are concerned with Judaism and right. Jewish history and right. culture. And a few below that, down at number 18, is Arcanum Unbounded. This is the first short fiction collection by a very popular best-selling fantasy author Brandon Mm. Sanderson. And it gives readers nine behind-the-scenes glimpses at the intricate cosmogony that ties together his various blockbuster fantasy series. Uh, Our review says that this collection is required reading for Sanderson fans, and it offers plenty for new readers who are undeterred by learning too much, as some of these short stories do have spoilers in them for the series that they connect with. 
Uh, and finally down at number 21 is The Spy by Paulo Coelho. And uh, this is his uh, striking novel about Mata Hari, the Dutch courtesan and exotic dancer who was executed in 1917 for treason and in all likelihood was innocent. And the story unfolds through letters to her lawyer that she hopes will be given to her daughter if she is killed. Uh, our review says the novel is not his strongest work, but the ending is brilliant in its irony, and throughout he displays inability to inhabit her voice. Through the letters, he illustrates the difficulties of being an independent woman in that time and place, and by the end, readers will believe that they've read her actual mm. letters. Oh, great. And that's what we've got in fiction. Not a lot happening. How about over in nonfiction? Uh, about the same. Uh, three. At number eight, our highest debut, Thomas Friedman's new book, Thank You for Being Late, An Optimist's Guide to Thriving in the Age of Accelerations. Uh, we say Friedman, who actually is a three-time Pulitzer Prize winner for his work you know, as a reporter of the New York Times, uh, engages in an intelligent but overlong discussion of the faster paces of change in technology, globalization, and climate around the world. We say that, unfortunately, Friedman's intriguing facts and ideas are all but buried under too many autobiographical anecdotes and lengthy uh, recollections about his circumstances of interviews he conducted and research he completed, which gives the reader the recipe and history of all the ingredients along with the meal. So they say it's a little bit slow, but readers are picking it up and uh, buying it. So at number 14, we have The Daily Show, the book. An oral history is told by Jon Stewart, the correspondent, staff, and guests. And that's exactly what it is, an oral history of The Daily Show. What it says on the tin. Exactly. Uh, and finally, Donald Stratton's All the Gallant Men, an American sailor's firsthand account of Pearl Harbor, which uh, is publishing just... Um, the week before the anniversary of Pearl Harbor. So uh, this is by, he's the uh, uh, survivor of the USS Arizona. And there's been a couple of uh, documentaries about searching, exploring the uh, sunken Arizona, uh, which is, they call now as a mass military graveyard. So that's been on PBS and a couple of other places. So that's at number 22. And that's all I got. Nonfiction. That's all right. It. Well, we'll we'll see what happens uh, in the coming months. Whether there are any surprising movements or changes uh, as we go into the holiday shopping season. Right. I'm Mark Rotella, and I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Thomas J. Ward Jr. tells us how a community health center became a national success story. We'll be right back. I'm Danica Kelly, author of Bestiary, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Thomas J. Ward Jr. on the line. His new book is Out in the Rural, a Mississippi Health Center and its War on Poverty. Tom, I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. So tell us um, about this, uh, this book, which focuses on the nation's first rural community health center, which opened up in 1967. Yeah, this... Uh book comes out of uh, the story of Dr. Jack Geiger, uh, who's often called the, the father of community health. Uh, Jack was uh, part of a group uh, of physicians in the uh, early and mid-1960s called the Medical Committee for Human Rights. Uh, there was basically a group of doctors, black and white, northern and southern, uh, who traveled throughout the South uh, during the civil rights movement patching up the civil rights workers as they got beat up. Uh, you know, local doctors and local hospitals wouldn't wouldn't take them. Uh, they, they weren't uh, seen as people that they wanted to, to deal with. So the MCHR 
traveled behind them? Uh, was it, you know, in places like Birmingham and Selma? And uh, what happened was as these doctors traveled around with the civil rights workers, they became horrified, and I don't think that's too strong a word, horrified at the conditions uh, that they found a lot of uh, southern blacks living in, uh, especially in the Mississippi Delta, but in, in other parts, parts of rural Alabama and rural Louisiana as, as well, rural Arkansas. And uh, it, the idea for the health center actually grew out of uh, a meeting uh, that they were having at a hotel, a, a kind of a bull session more than anything else, where these doctors were very frustrated and uh, were kind of wondering what they could do. They were kind of questioning why why the hell are we down here trying to get people voting rights and things when they're when they don't have basic health care, when they don't have enough to eat, when they don't have basic sanitation. And Jack Geiger, who was uh, from New York, although he was uh, in Boston at this time, uh, was one of these physicians. And he had spent uh, a fellowship when he was uh, finishing up med school uh, in South Africa. And he had worked for uh, Dr. Sidney and Emily Clark, uh, a couple of, of physicians in, in South Africa, who had developed a community health program in the South African townships. And Jack spent about six months uh, in these South African townships. And the idea behind these community health centers that the Karks developed was to focus uh, you know, on, on, the, on the social aspects of medicine, the social determinants of health, uh, these conditions like nutrition, conditions like sanitation, conditions like education that cause people to get sick and to work with getting people in control of their own health, not just going in and patching people up once they're sick or, or treating illness after it happens, but trying to uh, eliminate or ameliorate the conditions that, that made people sick. And so, so Jack had this experience in South Africa with the Karks, and so he brought it to uh, this meeting uh, with these other physicians, and they liked the idea, and they, they, they kind of went back to friends and neighbors and raised some money and started a small clinic called the Milston Clinic outside of Jackson, Mississippi. And they, they hired one public health nurse and, and some of them worked at this kind of part-time. Uh, but they realized that wasn't enough. And uh, this is uh, 1965. This is when uh, Lyndon Johnson is launching uh, the War on Poverty uh, and the OEO. And so what uh, Jack and uh, Count Geiger, uh, who's, uh, excuse me, uh, Count Gibson, Jack Geiger and, and Count Gibson. Count Gibson, uh, who was another physician and member of the uh, the MCHR, and, and Count Gibson was the uh, the dean at Tufts Medical School. Uh, they said, we're going to apply uh, for an OEO grant. Uh, we're going to apply to the new OEO and say, we want to create uh, two community health centers in the United States. And they asked for a demonstration money to, to kind of study it. And the OEO said, instead of giving them money just to study it, they said, we're going to give you money to, to found two um, uh, health centers. And the first one was put in Columbia Point in Boston, which was a, a housing project in Boston. So that one was going to be the urban center, and that one's going to open first and be directed by Tufts and be directed by uh, uh, Count Gibson. And Jack scouted the South for a rural center. The idea was they'd have one urban, one rural, one you know, kind of in the northern area, one in the southern area, and then they can see what worked and what, what didn't work. And so as the, uh, the Columbia Point Center uh, in Boston got started, Jack uh, and his team, he assembled a team, and they began to scout uh, areas in the South 
to uh, put one. And they looked in a number of areas, but Jack always wanted to be in Mississippi for a number of reasons. One is he it was the poorest state, and he wanted to be in the Delta, which was the poorest area. He had a lot of... Uh, you know, empirical evidence to, to justify uh, why they should be there uh, because of high uh, infant and maternal mortality rates. So they, they could say no one could say we shouldn't be here and we can chart uh, improvement better here. Uh, he also thought that it would be a, a place that would uh, have impact nationwide. As Jack used to say, he said, if we, you know, if we put it in Georgia, everybody would think it was uh, Atlanta and things wouldn't be so bad. He says, but we put it in Mississippi, everybody would understand that Mississippi had difficulties and, and, and it would he, have kind of more impact. Uh, he eventually settled on um, the town of Mound Bayou. Uh, Mound Bayou is uh, an all-black town. It was uh, actually founded by former slaves, former slaves of uh, Jefferson Davis's brother um, after the Civil War, and it, it had a history going back to the 1880s of, uh, even though it was deep within the Mississippi Delta, uh, it had a history of kind of black autonomy. Uh, the city had always been kind of run by the local uh, black population. Uh, there had been um, some very wealthy uh, black leaders there uh, that had made, made some made significant amounts of money in things like lumber uh, and farming. Uh, and most importantly for Jack, uh, they had uh, a history of uh, health care. Uh, there were actually two hospitals, two small hospitals in Mount Bayou, uh, Black Run Hospitals, both of which were in pretty bad shape by the 1960s. But the fact that you had had uh, these hospitals there, you didn't have to start from scratch. The fact that it was an all-black town um, – Jack thought that that would create a, a situation where there would be some uh, protection. This is still the mid-60s, even though the Civil Rights Act has been passed and the Voting Rights Act has been passed. It was, uh, there was still a lot of opposition and still racial violence uh, in, in, the, in the Mississippi and especially in the Delta. And so uh, Mount Bayou was, was chosen to uh, put this, this health center in. So they applied for this OEO grant and they got it. And so uh, they began doing some groundwork. Uh, Jack hired a, uh, a social worker by the name of John Hatch. Uh, John uh, was a, a native black Southerner. He was from, from Kentucky, uh, but he had been working in Boston for a number of years. Uh, John goes down uh, and kind of paved the groundwork in, in many ways in a way that, that Jack Geiger uh, could not have. Uh, he spent a couple of weeks uh, in the Delta, actually close to a couple of months uh, in the Delta uh, meeting people, uh, living in shacks with them, working in cotton fields with them, trying to find out what their needs were, and also trying to get them uh, on board with the idea of this health center. There's, there was a lot of distrust uh, in the Delta um, about you know outsiders coming in and promising things, especially you know white outsiders coming in and promising things. And so uh, John was did a great job in kind of uh, getting the. The, the field ready uh, before the health center was ready to be um, be built, and then the next year uh, they began uh, some nursing services, uh, and then the the center was actually opened in 1967, and they were actually able to uh, to have a, a, a an actual building where people could come and go to the clinic. They they had uh, had. Uh, some temporary buildings before that. They actually opened up in a church parsonage and then in the theater uh, before the uh, actual center was opened. But in 1967 is when they opened the, the actual center. So I want to go back uh, before we continue on this, because I want to see what the reaction was uh, in the community once this uh, hospital was built. But earlier on, you said um, 
that civil rights workers who were down in uh, Mississippi, Alabama, I assume elsewhere, uh, they did they, the locals didn't want to treat them. I, curious, who were the civil rights workers and what kind of treatment would they have needed? Oh, well, you know, the civil rights workers, when you think of the Freedom Riders and you think of, uh, you know, the, the, the different workers that were going through in, in, in the marches in, in Birmingham and Selma, when they would get beaten, if there wasn't a black physician to, to take care of them, uh, you know, white physicians would not would not take care of them. Uh, hospitals did not take care of them. This is before we had a good Samaritan law. Hospitals could leave you sitting out on the front front door. And of course, when you had civil rights marchers, when you had freedom riders, when you had these different demonstrators in, you know, 1961, 1962, 1963, 64, 65, the hospitals wouldn't take them. You know, the local white hospitals had nothing to do with them. There certainly were some black physicians uh, that that did take them in. uh, But of course, they put themselves at risk by treating uh, uh, civil rights workers uh, as well. Uh, One of the one of the uh, Medical Committee for Human Rights Physicians, who's very important also in the Delta Health Center, uh, was Dr. Bob Smith, who was a black uh, physician from Jackson, Mississippi. And and Bob had, had did a lot of work before the MCHR was even created. Uh, but, you know, it, it cost him uh, – he had a state job uh, and it cost him that state job. Um, uh, so, you know, even an even a African-American physician uh, put himself or herself at risk if they were going to if they were going to treat uh, civil rights workers in the early 60s. So it was, uh, you know, it was a real problem. So so bringing up to where you had left us when when this hospital opened, um, you know, there, there was a lot of you, you tell about a lot of skepticism from both black and white communities. Tell us why. Tell us what were they? Well, uh, before we move on, it, the health center is not a hospital. Uh, there was actually a hospital. There were actually two hospitals in Mount Bayou, and uh, the health center did not provide hospital services. Actually, one of the reasons why Jack wanted to put it in Mount Bayou is because uh, he thought that they could use the hospital for the hospital services, and the health center could could do these do these other services. Because he says they're not really going to do the same things. And actually, one of the things that is going to go on is that. Uh, they would get a grant to uh, redo the was called the Taborian Hospital, which was the Knights and Daughters of Tabor, which was the uh, fraternal organization that had had owned the hospital. Uh, but the health center is, is is different from a hospital, so I, I just want to kind of clear that up. But the, the skepticism, um, there, were, there was skepticism from a whole bunch of levels, and some of it was well expected, and some of it was uh, a surprise. Now, <clears throat> Jack and uh, Count Gibson. And all the MCHR physicians were expecting to get resistance from uh, local white physicians, uh, in part just because they didn't want to see anything that they saw perhaps as uh, a threat to uh, either their pocketbook, which was really not a threat to their pocketbook because most of them were not treating the people that the health center was designed to be treating. Um, But also there was tremendous resistance to any type of federal programs in Mississippi uh, in the mid '60s, uh, you know, mm. the, there was a tremendous opposition um, uh, to, you know, anything that, that smacked of of federal federal intervention uh, at, at this time amongst white Mississippians. Um, so they expected that. They expected the resistance from the white physicians. They expected resistance from the white community. They expected resistance from the uh, the Mississippi state government, which of course was still all white at this point. One of the things that was actually very interesting was the way the OEO was was written up was to placate Southern 
governments, especially southern governors, uh, when and, and senators and congressmen when uh, Johnson was trying to get it passed, the OEO allowed southern governors to veto war on poverty programs, a lot of war on poverty programs. The only things that were veto-proof were uh, if it went through an educational institution. And these governors approved that because they – most of them just assume, well, if it was going through an educational institution, it was going to go through one of their educational institutions. Hmm. So if you're in Mississippi, it would be probably going through Ole Miss or, or, uh, or, or Mississippi State or something like that. But the OEO grant for Mount Bayou went through Tufts, went through a, uh, a Massachusetts institution, yeah. which made it veto-proof, which was actually very it's important very to, clever. The, to, the, to the success of it. When, when, the, when the governor found out he couldn't veto these funds, it created a, uh, a lot of anger on, on his side and also amongst Mississippi senators. So, so the opposition from whites was expected. Uh, although Jack did find that, you know, he met with the state medical society and they had a vote if, if he should be allowed to come. Of course, it, they couldn't keep him from coming. And they voted, uh, you know, he said they voted 50 to nothing, 50 to one against it. There was one black physician who voted for it. Uh, but he said we also had 50 abstentions. And he said those 50 abstentions I took as people that wanted us to come, these doctors that wanted us to come, but they didn't want to be on record as saying I, I approve of this. And he said – he even had a lot of them come up and say, look, what you're doing is a good thing, uh, but we kind of can't say that publicly because, because of political reasons. And so there was some t- tacit support among some of these physicians, but, but not, not very much. But all that was expected. What was unexpected was uh, opposition that uh, the health center found from a lot of kind of the, the black elites in Mount Bayou. Mount Bayou was chosen in part because it had uh, an all-black government, because it had this history of of autonomy. But the problem was uh, that all-black government didn't really want to see a – what was viewed as a white institution, an outside institution, come in uh, with all this federal money if they weren't going to control the money. And uh, so there was was tension throughout the history of the the Tufts Delta Health Center um, uh, over – who was going to control this money coming in, and that was that was kind of a, a, a problem Jack had not expected. The other area they didn't really expect was kind of um, a lot of skepticism from the people they expected to be helping. Um, there, there was a lot of skepticism. This is where John Hatch was very helpful in kind of paving the way, but a lot of people didn't believe that you know this medical school from from Boston, these doctors from up north were really going to come in and, uh, you know, do, doing something to help them. They, you know, it was kind of a, why would you be doing this? So it took them probably a year to, to get over a lot of the skepticism from the local community. Uh, and, and that was, that was something they hadn't expected. So, you know, some of the uh, opposition was expected. Some of it was, you know, uh, not expected. And some of these things had to kind of be, be earned over time as, as they, as they showed what they were doing. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. 
Welcome back. We're talking with Thomas J. Ward, Jr., author of Out in the Rural, about the very first rural community health center in the U.S. So it met with all of the skepticism, but uh, ultimately it was successful. Give us a a sense of uh, how that played out and uh, how it influenced others. Well, the great success of the the Tufts Delta Health Center was the fact that it wasn't just a health center coming in to do things like uh, give vaccinations and treat people when they, they got ill. They did do those things, uh, but it really dealt with the what, what Jack called the social determinants of health. And so when they came in, uh, John Hatch went through and he organized local health centers, uh, lo- lo- local health groups. Uh, there's one health center in Mount Bayou, but they or- organized all these local health units. So little tiny towns, there were 10, there were 10 units spread throughout the north, north part of the county. The, the health center is going to serve the northern part of Bolivar County, um, uh, Mississippi, which is right along the uh, Mississippi River, uh, deep in the Delta, deep in, in cotton country. And so these local groups would elect their own officers and they would say, these are the things we want. Um, we want to be taken care of. Uh, and that was really uh, important because they came in from Boston thinking, okay, we're going to come in. We know that there's horrible child, um, uh, maternal and child uh, mortality rates. So we're going to work on those things. But when they came in and started talking to people, people, those were not the main priorities of people. Uh, people talked about food, uh, which became a huge issue. People talked about elder care uh, because what had happened is with the collapse of the sharecropping economy, uh, you had a society that was very old and very young and, and people in the middle had all left for Chicago and Detroit and other places. And mm-hmm. so the elderly were not being taken care of. People with the geriatric diseases and, of course, diseases brought about from years of not having good diet, backbreaking work in the, you know, in the cotton fields. And so they had to kind of learn on the fly and, and adapt to what needed to be done. So that was one of the, the big issues. Food was a huge issue. They, they you know, they talked about they'd go to these uh, local health units and they'd talk to people about what they want to do for the children and for the mothers. And uh, local people would say, well, that, that's all well and good. He goes, but what we need, are, what we need is food. Uh, and uh, this is actually at a time where you're seeing the transition from commodities to food stamps. And the Mississippi Delta was so poor that as the, as the transition went from commodities to food stamps, you actually had people getting less food to eat because you had to have some money to buy food stamps. Um, and so the the, the, the uh, hunger problem was actually getting worse in the Mississippi Delta in the late 60s. Uh, you also had these food stamps were being controlled by the white you know, Mississippi government. So food became a big problem. Uh, Jack Geiger actually developed what became known as the food prescription program. They, they saw so many children that were malnourished that he started writing prescriptions for milk and eggs and bread and he got local grocery stores to fill uh you know to fill these prescriptions um and they were like i said they were paid for out of their uh uh, pharmacy budget the oeo as you can imagine went crazy when they found out that they were paying for you know food out of a, a pharmacy budget out of a drug budget but jack said you know very simply he said he said look the uh the the cure for malnutrition is food. And he said, that's, that's what these people have. They have malnutrition. Um, and of course, they couldn't argue with that logic. And they, they started to institute uh, what became known as the food prescription program there. So that's kind of an example of, of seeing a problem they had not expected. Uh, the other thing they did was they said, OK, we're, we're not just going to deal with these immediate health issues. We've got to look at things like where people live. This is the late 
1960s. And you have people, the vast majority of black people in Bolivar County, over 80 percent, uh, didn't have running water in their homes. Uh, they were still using uh, not only outhouses, but usually unsanitary outhouses. Uh, there were they were in cabins where rats and snakes and flies and all kinds of other vermin got into the, their cabins all the time. So Jack developed a uh, environmental health um, program, uh, which was one of the most successful programs they had. And he hired a, a black sanitarian, Andy James, who was a, a native of Birmingham, Alabama, but who was, who was working up in uh, Dayton, Ohio at the time. And Andy came and he did things like said, okay, we're going to, uh, you know, he's, he said, well, we can't go and put flush toilets in everybody's house. We, you know, they're not ready for that. Uh, we're not – we don't have the money to do that. These houses wouldn't do it. But we can at least build sanitary privies, which seems like a, a almost a backwards thing to be doing in 1967, 68, 69. But they, they, that was dealing with immediate health issues. Uh, water was a tremendous issue. So sewage is one problem. Water was another. Uh, most of these homes didn't have running water. Most of the people in the Delta, most of the black people in the Delta uh, were – they got their water. They kept their water in 55-gallon drums. Most of these 55-gallon drums were, were there because they were uh, left on the plantations because they had held uh, pesticides before. So they would, they would take these old pesticide 55-gallon drums and fill them up with water. Um, sometimes they'd take them in a town where they were getting some kind of potable water. Sometimes they were filling them up uh, just out of ditches and, and ditch water and, and river water. And so there was, as you can imagine, all kinds of diseases caused by uh, poor water. And so one of the things that, that Andy James and his team did is they, they developed uh, first a, a very primitive um, – uh, drilling program. They didn't have money for a regular well drilling program. So he actually created something where he had two guys. They had a cutoff um, uh, telephone pole and they, they put a three quarter inch pipe and they just banged it down until they got 12 <laughs> feet down into the ground and and they could get they could get water and and you can go around the delta today and you can still see these these orange pumps that, that were in but that was the way they could get clean water. And eventually they, they got a grant to, to you know, get regular uh, drilling machines. But you know, that's how basic it was. Um, the environmental health uh, services also dealt with things like, I said, you know, we talked about the, the uh, outhouses. Uh, many parts, many of these cities, of course, you had the white part of town, of course, did have water, did have sewage. Um, the black part of town did not. And, and when you had heavy rain, which you can get in the Mississippi Delta, uh, you'd literally have, you know, raw sewage floating in the streets of, of you know, Black Rosedale and Black uh, Mound Bayou and all all these areas, and um, they actually Andy James and his team actually entered into lawsuits. Uh, the, the lawsuit actually becomes Shaw versus Mississippi, uh, that said you cannot uh, a, a town a municipality can't uh, provide services in one part of the town and not in the other. It goes all the way to the Supreme Court. I think it's not until 1972 or 1973. But, I mean, that, that was those were the conditions they were finding themselves in. They patched up um, sh uh, people's sh homes, uh, you know, patched up boards, fixed steps, uh, put in screens, uh, uh, did all kinds of vermin control, you know, spray, sprayed pesticides to keep people from getting, you know, diseases from mosquitoes and rats and snakes and things like that. Uh, 
one of the the interesting things they did was when they you talking about talking about earlier things that they didn't expect to find the first winter they were there they had all these children showing up with burns and they they hadn't expected to have all these burns and they found out that most of these plantation shacks uh those 55 gallon drums they use for waters they they also use 55 gallon drums to make stoves out of and there were that was often the only heating in the shack so you'd have this this stove that was just an old um uh you know ddt drum and it was it had wood or coal in it and of course little kids would bump into that and burn themselves um and so to alleviate that problem the next year they they devised a basically just a little fence that they went into all these homes and built these little fences so kids wouldn't burn themselves and you you saw you solved that problem so so many of these things were, were very very basic uh that they that they had to do and like i said outside of just regular health care. Um, but of course, they improve people's health because if you improve the water, you improve sewage, you get rid of mosquitoes, you get rid of rats, you get rid of snakes, you don't have kids bumping into hot stoves, you're, you eliminate health problems before they, they actually have to be dealt with at the center. So it sounds like this is an incredible story. What was it like to write and, and research it? And what is important about telling the story now? Well, the, the researching it was great. I, the, the best part was getting to, to meet and, and work with and talk with the, most of the founders. Jack Geiger is still alive. He was the he was the founder. John Hatch, who had been the the, the social worker, uh, was you know is still around. He's a, a retired professor now from from Chapel Hill. Uh, Andy James, Bob Smith, Elsie Dorsey, who just passed away, who, who ran the the food um, co op, the farm co op, uh, and so getting to meet them was was by far the the best part of, of doing the research and, and getting getting their their stories. Uh, why the story is important today, we're still dealing with this. In fact, in, in some regards, I think the the story became more relevant in the last couple weeks than than it had had before. As we're talking about, uh, you know. What's going to happen with things like uh, Obamacare? Obamacare had had um, e- extended um, uh, lots of money for community health centers. Community health centers right now, there, there are uh, over 2,900 community health centers in the United States. More Americans get their health care from, from community health centers than, than any other single source in, in the country right now. So these two centers that started in 1966 and 1967 um, – they they started a, a movement that that are, is is vital to the way millions of Americans get their health care today. And now I think there's there's a question over if if uh, you know funding for for those programs are, are going to continue or going to be slashed. So I think in that regard there's um, it's very relevant. I think the other part of it that's very relevant is uh, dealing with this question of social determinants of health, not just dealing with health care uh, as something you treat somebody once they get sick. I mean, we're talking about in the 1960s in the Mississippi Delta, things that were very basic, water and, and food and things. But we're still looking at issues like that today. When you look at places like Flint, Michigan, sure. right? you know, we, should, we certainly deal with environmental health. I mean, you know, where I live on the Gulf Coast, you know, we've, we've dealt with oil spills. We, you know, we debates over the pipeline, uh, you know, at, at Standing Rock. I mean, there, all these are environment. There are environmental issues that affect health. Um, there are preventative um, issues that affect health. Um, issues over nu- nutrition. One of the um, uh, Aaron Shirley, who's another one of the founding members who passed away a couple years ago, uh, he said that you know in ni- the 1960s, Al- uh, Mississippians were were dying of uh, malnutrition. He said in the 2000s, they're dying of uh, 
too much food, and, you know, obesity being a problem, and 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 the you know food deserts where people can't get healthy food. So it, the, a lot of the issues are are still extremely relevant today on what uh, on what the health center was was doing in the in the 1960s. So your first book was Black Physicians in the Jim Crow South. Was this yes. sort of an an offshoot of that? Was did you yeah, were you inspired by that one to to turn in this direction? I, I wasn't inspired to do it uh, by that, but it, it came about that way. I was actually working on a totally different project um, on on prisoners of war. I, I was about as far away from this as, as it could be. And I got a phone call from uh, John Dittmer, who's the author of Local People and, and a, a very famous uh, Southern historian. Uh, and John had, knew uh, Jack uh, Geiger. He knew a lot of these. He knew Bob Smith. He had been a part of the civil rights movement. He had been a professor at Tougaloo in the 1960s. And um, John had been asked by uh, Jack Geiger and uh, and John Hatch to help them with this book they had been trying to write for about 20 years. And mm. he had been kind of advising them. And then finally they said, look, we want you to write it. And uh, John said, no, <laughs> he's, he's retired. He said, but uh, – Tom can write it. He, he knew me because I was because uh, I had a background. I, I I went to school in Mississippi. I know Mississippi. I knew Mount Bayou. I had the medical background, and so you know. So John called me and he said he said I think you should consider doing this. He said I think you could drop right in. You you have enough. So black physicians in the Jim Crow South didn't inspire me to do this, but I, I wouldn't have gotten to be asked to do this book had I not written Black Physicians in the Jim Crow South, because uh, because uh, especially John Dittmer, the great John Dittmer, knew about the uh, my book and had worked with me and read read on it. So that that's how I came to this project. But that sounds like a, a wonderful connection. What was it like talking with uh, these folks who had really been on the front lines of this battle against poor health? Oh, it was it was wonderful. I you know. I, I said when when John Dittmer asked me to do this, I was skeptical. I had small children. I was working on a different project. He said, "You need to meet Jack Geiger." And I didn't know Jack. And uh, Jack actually flew down to, to Mobile, uh, probably to interview me more than me interviewing him about doing this project. And mm-hmm. you know, within about an hour of being with him and him talking about this project, and uh, you know, I, I had to do it. And and, and do, the, my main motivation was was doing this for for Jack and for John and for Andy James and for Elsie because once I met them and and knew how much they wanted their story told and what a great story it was and how much they had put into it you know I really wanted it I really wanted to work on it so meeting them hearing their stories um, you know some of those some of these people are, are people I had I'd read about and knew about Elsie Dorsey who was one of the you know, also passed just a couple years ago, one of the real heroes of the civil rights movement. And I knew her civil rights story, but I didn't know um, her story with the, the health center. She she came to the health center after she would, you know, had had kind of had her bona fides as a uh, as a voting rights activist in Mississippi. Uh, Bob Smith, who I knew of because of my work on black physicians in in Mississippi. So it was uh, it was a joy to get to meet them and and the stories they told and the the obstacles they overcame and the creativity. Um, you know the things that Andy James did with the uh, the environmental programs. It's 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 great to hear. You know, instead of kind of throwing up your hands, you know, showing up and saying, "Oh my God, people are are." using outhouses. What can I do here? You know, he, he found answers instead of, um, you know, complaining about what he couldn't do. And, and it was very inspiring. We've been talking with Thomas J. Ward Jr. You can find his book out in the rural in stores right now. And it sounds like it's full of amazing stories. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about holiday book sales. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Robert Canigal. I'm the author of Eyes on the Street, The Life of Jane Jacobs. And here we are on Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us all about holiday book sales. Hello, Jim. Hey, Mark. How are you? Good, good. Thanks. So, um... The sales. We're going to talk a little bit of post-Thanksgiving? A little post-Thanksgiving, a little post-election. Right. We might have mentioned in some earlier broadcasts that the publishers and the booksellers alike were hoping that after the election was over, sales, which had been pretty sluggish for the summer, would uh, maybe take a bit of a bounce now that that was out of the way. Uh, We hadn't really seen that too much in the first couple of weeks following the election, but it does look like that uh, Thanksgiving... uh, you know, they give hope that uh, sales for the rest of the holidays will be good for the bookstores. So what what was Black Friday like? Do we have any numbers from that yet? Or? Well, you know, what this, this survey does is talks to about a couple dozen uh, books, independent booksellers. Um, and some of the people we talked to, and again, this is, you know, kind of individual, you know, had tremendous sales up. Uh, on Black Friday. Uh, Women and Children's First in Chicago, for instance, said their Black Friday sales are up 52% over uh, 2015. And, you know, now Black Friday is coupled with uh, two events on Saturday, the Small Business Saturday and the Indie First campaign, Mm -hmm. which are both events that try to encourage people to shop local. And I think we all know now that the shop local movement in the last couple of years has really uh, taken hold and it has made a, it's made a, a definite change in how people shop you know, over the weekend there. So we've noticed, as Rose and I have been talking during the bestseller list, that you know, during the election, there, there, we didn't seem to get a lot of new books you know, debuting on the bestseller list. The ones that were, especially in nonfiction, were uh, political books, though we did see some like kind of escapist books, especially in nonfiction, um, you know, cookbooks, life-changing books. Right. And those are the ones that seem to be, you know, selling in addition to some of the big, you know, big, um, you know, mystery and thriller writers who, who were going to have books out anyway. Right. Was there, is there any kinds of books that seem to have boosts in sales or were doing better than others? Well, that's interesting. And that it's a mix of what you were just talking about. Um, there are some people who you know want to try to get some a book that's going to explain what happened, and not just why Trump won, but the whole dynamics behind what's going on in the country. And there were others who certainly um, don't want anything to do with thinking about the election anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And not only because of of who won, but you know there was no real big book, but one book that was cited a lot was Hillbilly Elegy. Right. Um, and that's been on the list since probably late summer, early fall, and it explains you know, a little bit what's going on in uh, working-class America there. So th- that is still selling pretty well. Um, but there were, uh, you know, there's a host of things. And like we said, you know, people are always looking for the big book, either during the summer or for the holidays. And right now, there's nothing really being coalesced around uh, a big movement or anything about what's really selling. But um, there were some books and some authors who were doing pretty well. And I think you might recognize some of these names. 
Colson's Whitehead Underground Railroad, Jeff Kinney's uh, Diary of Wimpy Kids series, not just the new one, all of Rick Reardon's kids' books, mm. and J.K. Rowling's uh, Fantastic Beats and Where to Find Them, all were uh, books that uh, were mentioned by a number of booksellers as, you know, being hot in their stores. Right. So um, some kids' books. Always kids' yeah. books in the holidays, yeah, yeah. Right, Mark, right. You know that. <laughs> yeah, I, I know someone who's got her Christmas tree up and decorated already. So, I, yeah, <laughs> that was the look on my wow. face, too. So uh, I'm, I'm sure people are already starting to buy those holiday gifts, trying to, trying to get ahead. Right. Oh, I'm, I'm sure of that. You know, and, you know, in addition to those books that we just mentioned, some of which, or all of which are pretty national bestsellers, one thing that's always important for the independent booksellers are some titles that are, are local. And you mentioned uh, Christmas. There is a book here called <laughs> Mountain Christmas from Quarry Books. That's uh, down south. And it was doing well at um, a bookstore in Charleston, West Virginia. And this might not be a regional book per se, but uh, Our Revolution by Bernie Sanders was mm, quite a hit in right. New England, for example. Yeah, I'm sure, especially probably in the Vermont bookstores. Yeah, apparently we have a picture of uh, people lined out the door waiting to, waiting to hear the good senator. <laughs> so what else is, uh, is happening? So you said these are interviews with uh, mostly small stores. Did, did they pretty much seem optimistic? Very optimistic. I don't think we talked to one person who had mentioned even sluggish sales. Um, it's been a resurgent couple of years now for the independent booksellers and they seem you know really encouraged by what happened over the holidays and having the election behind them they think um you know it, it could be could be clear sailing right to the finish line and they also you know everybody in the media in general makes a big deal about black friday and thanksgiving week and weekend but over the last several years bookstores in particular have found that it's the last 10 days right before christmas that really are the, is the biggest week. Thanksgiving is, you know, really three days. Right. Uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So, you know, that's what they're really hoping for and pointing towards, that uh, they'll finish the year right before Christmas with a big bang. You know, and some of the other things that happened also over Thanksgiving, and one of the couple of stores we talked about, they were part of community celebrations. And again, cooking back, mm-hmm. looking back to the whole... Um, uh, shop local movement they sure. they had uh all the local bookshops organize some sort of celebration that that took in all of uh, all of the stores and you know luckily so we talked to a couple stores one in maryland in particular that mentioned you know that really worked very well and they're having another like uh community event a little later in december which she thinks is going to really be another spike in sales that sounds all um, very positive. It's really nice to hear some good news. No, it is positive. Uh, hopefully it's not <laughs> foolishly optimistic. But, you know, again, you know, we, all the booksellers we've talked to have had a, a good year. The Thanksgiving week really, you know, helped them finish November on an up note. So right now they don't see any reason not to be optimistic. I've got a good feeling about books. I'm just going to say it. Well, you know, books have always been a good gift, as we yeah. all know. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's a gift for everyone, yeah. for your Trump and Hillary supporter, whoever you are. And, and those folks who are still feeling the burn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, thanks, Jim. It's always good to have you on the show. Appreciate you coming and uh, giving us that holiday update. And maybe after Christmas, we'll uh, get a recap of how that, those last 10 days before the holiday was. Yeah, I'm glad to do that. Thanks a lot, Rose. And now a final word from our sponsors. 
Hello, I am Lawrence Levy, author of To Pixar and Beyond, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another in-depth author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 